All right, good morning. Good to be with you guys again this morning. We're going to be in the book of Exodus. We are on week two of our series, Walking Through the Book of Exodus. So if you want to turn there, if you've got your Bible, hopefully you do. If not, there are Bibles on the pewbacks in front of you. You can use those. Um, and the, the words will also be on the screen behind me, so you can always look along there. Uh, Exodus is the second book in the Bible, so Genesis and then Exodus. If you hit Leviticus, you've gone too far. Huh? <laughs> so turn to Exodus. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 2. I had to slide that one in there, sorry. <laughs> it's my favorite joke. For those that don't know, just ask somebody after church. Um, so I'm going to read the passage. We're going to read all of Exodus chapter 2, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump in, okay? Here's what God's Word says. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with vitamin and with pitch. And she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. One day... When Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? And he answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, 
And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Let me pray. God, I thank you so much for your word. God, I thank you that you are a God who hears the cries of your people. You see our sufferings, you hear our groans, and you know our suffering. God, you're not aloof to the difficulties we walk through. In fact, Jesus, you came and you dwelt among us and suffered the same temptations, the same hardships, the same rejection, the same pain, and ultimately, you suffered death in our place on the cross. God, I thank you that you are a good and gracious God who hears prayer, who's near to those who call on them. Lord, I pray that every single person in this room would come to know you like that this morning. If there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know you, that is still in bondage and slavery this morning to their sin and to, their, and to death, I pray that today they would be set free. And I pray that you would encourage your church. I pray that you would encourage your people this morning. Remind us that, God, you are always at work around us. Even when we can't detect what you're doing, that even through the darkness, even through the difficult times, even when we can't see the way ahead, God, you are at work. You are faithful to your covenant. You are compassionate. Our suffering is not in vain. It's not meaningless. Lord, I pray that you'd help me as I preach. I can do nothing apart from you, Lord. There's nothing I have to offer anyone here in this room. It's, by, it's your word, God, that has the power to change our hearts. So I pray that you would change us, change me this morning by your word. I pray that I would get out of the way and that, God, Jesus would be proclaimed and magnified and lifted high from this pulpit this morning. May our eyes be fixed on you. I pray this in your name. Amen. All right. So, have you ever had to trust God through a really dark period in your life? Yeah. Maybe it was the death of a loved one, or maybe a, a long, dark season of depression. Maybe it was being hurt by someone that you love. Maybe it was relentless physical pain with no relief and no answers. Maybe even persecution because of your faith in Jesus. If you haven't walked through a period like that yet in your life, you will. And one of the biggest questions that comes up in times like this are, where is God in the midst of it all? Where is God? While Exodus chapter 2 doesn't specifically ask, ask that question, I think it's implied. Let me remind you of the setting of what's happening here. God's people, Israel, they were enduring tremendous suffering. They were suffering under brutal slavery, under Pharaoh. And Pharaoh had issued a decree to throw every Hebrew baby boy into the Nile River to try to stop the people of Israel from multiplying. So just think about what this would have been like. Apart from the crushing burden of slavery and of beatings at the crack of the whip, the Israelites lived in abject fear. As soon as an Israelite woman found out that she was pregnant, there would have been this deep-seated fear that rose up in her mind, what if it's a boy? It's hard to imagine what it would be like to carry a child for nine months to give birth to your baby boy only to have him ripped from your arms and drowned at the hands of a cruel empire. And such darkness begs the question, what about God's covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? 
Didn't God promise to bless His people? Why are they enduring such tremendous burdens and hardship? Why isn't God doing something about this suffering? Perhaps that's a question you yourself have asked about your own life. Or maybe it's a question you've asked about just the world in general. I believe that Exodus chapter 2 is all about the faithfulness of God. It's a reminder that God is doing something, that He is faithful to His covenant. We may not always be able to perceive God's activity, but that does not mean that God is absent. Moses wrote the book of Exodus. He wrote the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And he wrote the book of Exodus most likely while the Israelites were wandering around in the wilderness to remind them of God's past faithfulness and of God's character, of who God is. And we need these same reminders. It's easy for us to doubt God's faithfulness in the dark days and in the times where we can't see the way ahead. But as we will see in Exodus chapter 2, God is faithful and good. He's at work in ways that we can't comprehend, and we simply need to trust Him. The main point of the sermon this morning is that because God is faithful and compassionate, we can trust Him to deliver us even in the darkness. Because God is faithful and compassionate, we can trust Him to deliver us even in the darkness. Uh, Before we jump in, I think it would be helpful to point out how this passage is structured. Um, So in verses 1 to 22, it kind of zooms in on one particular family, on Moses and his family. Verses 1 to 10 tell the story of Moses' birth, and then verses 11 through 22 chronicle Moses' early life. But then in verses 23 through 25, Uh, the lens sort of zooms out and we see things from God's perspective. So you've got this close-up view of Moses and this one family in Israel in verses 1 through 22, and then we get God's perspective of all that's going on in verses 23 to 25. And so what I want to do is I want to walk through God's faithfulness in the birth of Moses and God's faithfulness in the early days of Moses' life. To see how God was at work the entire way. And then after that, we'll zoom out and think about specific applications for our lives, okay? So let's look at verses 1 to 10 and this narrative about the birth of Moses and look at God's faithfulness here. So at the beginning of chapter 2, we're told that there is a Levite woman who gave birth to a son who's later going to be named Moses. And she, even though there was a decree that every Hebrew boy that, should, that was born should be thrown into the Nile, she wanted to do everything that she could to save her son. And so she hid him for three months and um, at the risk of her life and at the risk of the, of the lives of the entire family. And when it became, it was no longer practical to keep hiding Moses, um, she put him in a basket and placed him in the Nile River. Now, I cannot imagine that this was done without much prayer and crying out to God. Clearly, this was a step of faith by Moses' mother and his family because she didn't know what was going to happen when she put her baby in that basket and sent him down the Nile River. At that point, she had to place her, her son in God's hands and pray that somehow, some way, God was going to save her boy. This is a remarkable example of faith, by the way, in Moses' mother. Just like the midwives in chapter 1, she feared God more than Pharaoh. 
She trusted God to deliver even through circumstances that seemed impossible. And this is exactly what happened. This son, this child of hers, just so happened to be found by Pharaoh's very own daughter. And Pharaoh's daughter had compassion on this baby. And then Moses' Moses's sister bravely and wisely suggested to Pharaoh's daughter that one of the Hebrew women should nurse this child. And, hey, I can go and find one for you if you'd like me to. And she said, sure. And so she goes and gets Moses' mother. And Moses' own mother gets to raise her son. We don't know exactly how long she raised Moses, but clearly it was long enough for Moses to understand his identity as a Hebrew and as an Israelite. But at some point in time, after Moses had grown up to be old enough, he was brought to the palace of Pharaoh, and he was adopted as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now, God's hidden hand is all over this story. God's deliverance of Moses... In verses 1 to 10, is it's dripping with irony. And even though God isn't specifically mentioned, it's obvious that his hand was at work. Think about, let me point out a couple of things to you that are just so amazing and so cool. So Moses was saved, and we mentioned this last week, through the very means that Pharaoh was attempting to destroy all the Hebrew males. He was put into the Nile River. And remember, back from chapter 1, the root of Pharaoh's fear from chapter 1 is that Israel would escape from the land. That's why Pharaoh had put the Israelites into slavery. It's why he had instituted this, this system of infanticide because he didn't want the Israelites to grow strong enough to be able to overpower the Egyptians and escape from the land. So Moses or Pharaoh's doing everything he can to stop that from happening. So the one thing Pharaoh was trying to do to prevent that from happening was the means that God used to cause it to come about. Moses was put into the Nile River and then raised in Pharaoh's own household and Moses would one day be the deliverer through whom God would lead his people out of Egypt. The very thing Pharaoh was trying to prevent. And not only that, but isn't it ironic that it's Pharaoh's own daughter who rescues Moses? In response to the faith of Moses' mother, God acted in a clear way to deliver Moses. These weren't mere coincidences. This was the sovereign hand of God. But you see, even Moses' mother didn't understand the full extent of what God was doing here. Because God was not merely rescuing one baby boy. He was doing something even greater. God was planting the seeds of the deliverance of the entire nation of Israel. Moses' deliverance in the Nile points back to God's salvation of Noah and his family, and it points ahead to God's salvation of all of Israel. So the word that's used for the basket that Noah was placed in, here in Exodus chapter 2, it's used one other time in the Bible. And that's in Genesis chapter 6, where it's used to describe the ark. Noah's ark, we're told in Genesis 6, was covered in vitamin. And Moses' little ark was covered with vitamin. Jesus, just as God placed Noah and his family in the ark to deliver them from the floodwaters of judgment, Moses was placed in a little ark and was also spared from a watery death. What's the purpose of using the same word? Why? What is Moses trying to show us here in Exodus chapter 2? What's he teaching us in recording the story this way? 
He's showing us that God is sovereign over all of history and that He's faithful to deliver His people from destruction over and over and over again throughout Scripture. The same God that delivered Noah and his family is the same God that's delivering Moses, and He's the same God that will deliver the people of Israel through the Red Sea and out of Egypt, and He's the same God that will deliver us today. Over and over and over throughout Scripture, we see this. See, that Moses' deliverance in the Nile, it not only points back to God's past faithfulness to save, but also ahead to God delivering His people through the waters of the Red Sea in Exodus chapter 14. This wouldn't have been lost on the Israelites as they were wandering around in the wilderness, as they were reading what Moses had written. God is faithful to save even when we can't see a way. God's faithfulness continues in the early years of Moses' life in verses 11 through 22. Between verses 10 and 11, a lot of time passes. Moses grows up, and he was raised in Pharaoh's household. He enjoyed all the privileges of being in the royal Egyptian family. But it's, it's obvious that Moses was aware of his Israelite identity. And we don't know... Um, how long he was in uh, his mother's home, but it's clear that his heart was tied to his people. And so when he saw an Egyptian mistreating an Israelite, Moses was indignant. The injustice of it caused him to rise up in defense of the one who was being mistreated. And so he killed the Egyptian who was abusing the Israelite, and then he had to flee Egypt because Pharaoh found out about it and was trying to kill him. And then after arriving in Midian, Moses once again rises up to defend the weak. He rescues Ruel's seven daughters from the shepherds at the well. In both of these instances, in Moses rising up to defend the Israelite who was being beaten, and in Moses rising up to defend Ruel's seven daughters, his actions foreshadow his role as the deliverer that God is going to raise up. Moses will be the man through whom God will lead Israel out of Egypt. It's as if God has hardwired Moses with his heart to defend the weak. It's notable here, though, that although Moses had a desire to deliver Israel, he was incapable of doing so in his own strength. Moses' sense of justice was correct, but his actions in killing the Egyptian backfired. Only later, after God commissioned and empowered him, would Moses be successful. I think this is a good time to stop and just point out that taking justice into our own hands is foolish. Because, number one, we're not the judge. And number two, we're powerless to bring about true justice. Moses may have wanted to deliver Israel from Egypt, but as one man, he was powerless to do so. Even his own people rejected him. And what's more, I think it's clear that Moses sinned in taking justice into his own hands. He clearly knew that he did wrong because, first of all, we read that he looked this way and that before he killed the Egyptian. And then after he killed the Egyptian, he tried to cover it up by burying him in the sand. Moses tried to step into God's place and to bring about justice on his own. Now, this doesn't mean that we cannot advocate for justice and speak up for what is right. We can and we should. God is a defender of the weak. God hates injustice, and His people should too. We ought to be defenders of the weak. We ought to hate injustice. 
And Moses' heart was right. His heart reflected God's heart. His, de- his desire to defend the weak was not wrong, but Moses erred because he didn't wait on God. He took things into his own hands. And we can't take justice into our own hands or sin to take vengeance. We are so quick to accuse when we feel like we've been wronged. We're so quick to want to be the ones who dole out the punishment. But we are both impotent and unqualified to do so. God has placed governing authorities in our lives to carry out justice. And even when they fail, which they will, and they do far too often, God will right every single wrong on Judgment Day. Our calling as followers of Jesus is to turn the other cheek. Jesus said, when you're wronged, He said, if, a, if an occupying soldier unjustly forces you to carry his bags one mile just because of your race, just because you're an Israelite, carry, that, carry his bags two miles. Are you harboring bitterness over past wrongs in your life? Are you quick to react with anger when someone disrespects you, ready to put them in their place? Ready to even the score. The reason that we're able to extend such radical grace, the kind of grace that Jesus calls us to extend to other people as Christians, is because God has extended radical grace to us. You see, Moses' actions in verses 11 to 22 didn't just foreshadow his own role as the deliverer that God was raising up to lead Israel out of Egypt. Moses himself was a foreshadowing of the deliverer that God would raise up, Jesus Christ. Just as Moses left behind the riches of Egypt to identify with the sufferings of his people before he could become their redeemer, so Jesus left the glory of his throne in heaven to come and to dwell among us, partaking in our suffering and subjecting himself to death so that he could redeem us. Jesus left the riches of heaven, His throne in heaven to come and dwell among us and to die for us in the same way that Moses left the riches of Pharaoh's household to come and identify with the people of God. And just as the Israelites rejected Moses and didn't recognize him as the deliverer God was raising up, Israel rejected Jesus and didn't recognize him as the Messiah that God had sent. But this was no surprise to God. Even Jesus' rejection was a part of His sovereign plan. Jesus said in Mark 8.31, The Son of Man must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and on the third day rise again. Jesus died on the cross to rescue us from the evil of sin and death, to take the punishment that we deserve in our place. See, Moses successfully... Later on, as we're going to see, he's going to successfully lead Israel out of Egypt through God's strength. But as we're going to see, as Exodus continues on, Moses could not successfully get the Egypt out of Israel. The law is unable to set us free from our sin. And that was Israel's true bondage, and it's our true bondage as well. Apart from Jesus, we are in bondage to sin and unable to free ourselves. And the wages of sin is death. No matter how hard we try to make ourselves righteous, we can't wipe away the guilt of our sin, and our sin must be atoned for. This is why Jesus died. 
he died for us while we were still sinners. And if you will repent of your sin and believe the good news of the gospel this morning, you will be saved. And this is a free gift of God by his grace, meaning it is undeserved. It's this grace that enables us to extend grace to others because God has forgiven us when we didn't deserve anything except His wrath. We're able to forgive others even though they might not necessarily deserve our forgiveness. We're able to offer that grace. We can turn the other cheek. What I hope you all will see and what Moses was highlighting in Exodus chapter 2 is that even in the midst of darkness, even in the midst of God's people being mistreated, God was still at work. And that becomes clear when we zoom out and we look at verses 23 to 25 and see things from God's perspective. Look at those verses again. It says that God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. God had not forgotten His covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and Jacob. He wasn't just now noticing Israel's burdens. When it says that God remembered His covenant, that's not to cause us to think that God had been busy off tending to other matters and went, oh gosh, I totally forgot about the Israelites. Let me go and see how they're doing and check in on them. Oh my gosh, guys, I'm so sorry. I should have come sooner. That's not what it's talking about. When it says that God remembered his covenant, it means that at this time, God was, was, was acting in a real and decisive way in their life. But what we come to see as we look back on Exodus chapter 2 is that God had already begun to act long beforehand. All the way back to Moses' birth, God had begun to set into motion the plan to deliver his people out of Israel. The people of Israel might not have seen it, and they couldn't detect it at the time. They had no idea. I mean, the birth of baby Moses was a very unremarkable event. Nobody knew that this child that was being born was going to be the one through whom God would deliver them. Nobody knew when Moses rose up to try to defend the Israelite from the Egyptian that this was actually the deliverer that God had raised up to lead them out of Egypt. In fact, they flat out rejected him. Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Get out of here, man. We don't want you. We don't care about you. But all the while, God had been at work, even though his work had gone undetected. One of the really interesting characteristics of this passage is that I don't know if you picked up on this, but God is not mentioned at all in verses 1 to 22. That's intentional by Moses, the author. Moses was highlighting that God is at work even in the darkness, even when it seems like he's absent. When it, even when it seems like he's not even involved in the story, God's hidden hand is at work. God was doing far more than Israel could have ever imagined in the moment. And the same holds true for God's people today. If you are a Christian, you can have confidence that even in the darkness, God is at work. And the basis for our confidence in this belief is right here in verses 23 to 25. God is faithful and compassionate. The basis for our confidence is the very character of God. It's who He is. God is faithful. He remembers His covenant. If you're a Christian, did you know that God has made a covenant with you? God has made a covenant with you. It's a new covenant. He has removed all your sin as far as the east is from the west. 
He's removed your heart of stone and given you a heart of flesh that loves Him and fears Him. He's promised to raise you from the dead and you will dwell with Him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. And that covenant has been bought and sealed by the blood of Jesus Christ. It can never be undone. Romans 8.32 says this, it says, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Think about what that passage is saying. Think about the logic of what that verse is saying. The logic is that if God has already done the hardest thing imaginable and loved us in the greatest way possible, a.k.a. giving us his son and he didn't he and he did not give his son to a deserving and worthy people by the way Christ died for us while we were still sinners so if God did not withhold his son will he really withhold any other good thing from us if God wouldn't even withhold Jesus while we were still sinners is there really any other good thing that he's going to withhold from his people the answer is no there's no good thing he's going to withhold from his people That's our confidence as we walk through the darkness when it seems like God is absent. He's not absent. He's working. And not only that, but God is compassionate. God hears our groans. He sees our suffering. And He knows. God knows our suffering because the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus took upon Himself the weakness of flesh. He experienced rejection, pain, temptation, and death. God did that for you. The God that we worship knows our sufferings. He's not aloof to our sufferings. He's able to relate to everything that you're enduring. Whether you've been hurt by someone or you're enduring the loss of a loved one or you're experiencing unending physical pain or depression, your God knows your suffering. He entered into it. That is amazing. That He would love us so much. Our God is a compassionate God. He has done something. He's not standing back doing nothing about the suffering. He actually came and dwelt among us. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, Isaiah 53 says. As God's people groan under the burdens of this sin-soaked world, under the injustice of persecution, under the burdens of bodies that ache and break down, we can trust that God sees, God hears, and God knows. And as Romans 8 so gloriously reminds us, these groanings will give way to renewal and restoration. When Jesus returns, God will right every wrong and make all things new. So how do we respond to knowing that our God is faithful and compassionate even as we walk through the darkness, or we respond with faith. Because God is faithful and compassionate, we can trust Him to deliver us even in the darkness. That's what faith is. It's trusting God in the darkness. Let me give you two ways as we wrap up that faith ought to manifest in our lives. Faith looks like praying without giving up and being willing to give everything up. Pray without giving up and be willing to give everything up. Let me touch on those two real quick. Praying without giving up. 
In Luke 18, Jesus told a parable to encourage his disciples to persevere in prayer. So the parable goes like this. There was an unjust judge in a city who didn't care about other people. And there was a widow who uh, kept going to the judge asking him to give her justice against her adversary. Somebody was wronging her, somebody was treating her unjustly, and she kept going to this judge, and the judge kept putting her off, saying, leave me alone, I don't have time for you. But finally, she kept coming and coming and coming, and she wouldn't leave him alone. She kept annoying him, and finally he said, fine, I'll give you what you're asking for if you'll just leave me alone. And Jesus says this, his point was that if even this unjust judge will grant justice to this widow who kept on coming for justice, he says this in Luke 18, will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. We can be far too quick to throw our hands up in despair when our groaning is prolonged, can't we? Exodus 2 gives us the perspective of seeing that God has been working all along, even when His people can't see it. We need to remember that perspective when prayers are slow to be answered, or when it seems like our suffering is not coming to an end. Jesus calls us to persevere in prayer. As his elect, Christians can cry out to God for justice and be confident that he hears our cries and that he will bring justice. And listen, some of our groanings won't come to an end until Jesus returns, but they will come to an end. Now, we hear Jesus when he says God will bring justice to them speedily, and our definition of speedily often isn't the same as God's definition of speedily, right? Some times we're like, Lord, can it come a little bit more speedily? But here's the thing. When we get into glory, when these light momentary afflictions that are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, once we enter into that glory, we enter into the joy of Jesus, and we've been there 10,000 years, and, this, and, there, and, we've, and we're no, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun, we're going to look back on eternity. We're going to look back on these light momentary afflictions and they're going to seem as nothing compared to the glory that's going to be revealed to us, church. That's what we need to remember, and it's what we need to keep our eyes on as we walk through this darkness. So don't give up. Continue to persevere in prayer. Pray without giving up. And secondly, faith looks like being willing to give everything up. Faith manifests itself in being willing to leave behind worldly gain to follow Jesus. Hebrews, listen to how the author of Hebrews reflects back on this passage in Hebrews eleven twenty four to 26. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to his reward. <clears throat> Moses left behind a comfortable, safe life in Egypt to identify himself with the God of Jacob and the people of Israel. And Moses knew this choice would entail suffering and hardship. He knew it was going to be costly to leave the palaces of Egypt behind, but Moses considered it worth it. 
Moses believed that bearing reproach with God's people was better than living it up in Egypt because Moses knew that Yahweh was the one true God. The author of Hebrews was pointing out, was pointing to Moses as an example of what faith looks like. In other words, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus, to become a disciple. Becoming a Christian means leaving the fleeting pleasures of sin to be mistreated along with the rest of God's people and to bear the reproaches of Christ, just like Moses. I'm going to repeat that. Becoming a Christian means leaving behind the fleeting pleasures of sin to be mistreated along with the rest of God's people and to bear the reproaches of Christ. That is basic discipleship. That's Christianity 101. That's what it looks like if we're to follow Jesus. Jesus told us that anyone who wants to be his disciple will be persecuted and treated like he was treated. So why would someone leave behind worldly pleasures for that? That's the question. Why would we leave behind the treasures of Egypt to go be mistreated with God's people? To go bear the reproach of Christ? It's the same reason that Moses did. Because Jesus is so, so much better. Because Yahweh is the one true God. All the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens and the earth. Hebrews 11.26 says, Moses left Egypt for the reproaches of Christ, for he was looking to his reward. And so are we. So are we. Our reward at the end of all of our momentary afflictions is that we will be with Jesus. We will see Him face to face. He will wipe away every tear from our eye. Death and Satan will be cast into the lake of fire forever, never to harm. All the injustices and mistreatments we've endured will be made right by Jesus, the just judge of the universe. And we will reign with Him forever in the new creation, and every single day will be better than the last. There is nothing more glorious or beautiful or satisfying than God. We just sang about that earlier in that song. He created all things. There's nothing more glorious than Him. There's nothing more beautiful than Him. The fleeting pleasures of this world, the pleasures of Egypt will pass away, but Jesus is alive forevermore. Psalm 84.10, David says it like this. He says, A day in your courts, O God, is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. The point is that Jesus has not promised Christians a life free from hardship or suffering. Following Him means oftentimes being led into the unknown. But for those who know and love Jesus, we can have confidence that because God is faithful and compassionate, He's at work even in the darkness. And we know how the story ends. We know that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed to us. And we're looking to our reward. Our reward is to be with Jesus. And He far surpasses anything that this world could offer. How I pray that you will believe that and not waste your life on things that will perish. Every time I, as I was preparing this sermon, the last couple of days, and just thinking about this and looking at Hebrews 11 and and seeing how Moses 
Once Moses saw the beauty of God and the glory of God, he knew that it was worth leaving everything behind to go just so that he could have a relationship with the one true God. How I wish I could put that desire in every one of your hearts. How I wish and I, I long that every single one of your eyes would be open to the beauty of Jesus, to the worth of Jesus, that there is nothing worth keeping you from Jesus. There is nothing worth saying no to Jesus for because all the treasures of Egypt, all the things of the world, friends, they're going to pass away. Don't give your life to things that aren't going to last. Give your life to the one who's going to, who lives forevermore, for the, to the one who made you, to the one who will satisfy your soul forever. Why would you waste your life? on things that are going to be buried in the ground along with your body. Store up treasure on heaven, in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy, where thieves don't break in and steal. One of the saddest things in the world is watching people walk away from the eternal joy that Jesus gives to seek their own way and their own fleeting pleasure and comfort. I think the, about the rich young ruler every time I think about that. You know the story. Many of you know the story. I think it's one of the saddest stories in the Gospels that this rich young man, this admirer of Jesus who loves Jesus' teaching and wants to follow him, comes to Jesus and says, what do I need to do to follow you? And Jesus says, sell everything that you have, all the riches that you so highly treasure, and then you'll have treasure in heaven, eternal riches, and then come and follow me. And it says that the rich young ruler, he turned away sad for he had many possessions. What do you have if you gain the whole world, but you forfeit your soul? You can gain the whole world. But if you cling to the things of this world, and those things keep you from following Jesus, you'll lose it all in the end. Don't lose it all. If you are on the fence about following Jesus today, I am pleading with you, don't forfeit your soul for that which won't last. Believe in Jesus today and follow Him. Make today the first day of a journey of following Jesus for the rest of your life. And if you're a believer here this morning and you feel overwhelmed with sorrow, if you feel the crushing burden of the groanings of this world on you as you are grieving or as you're dealing with hardships, don't despair. Though you may not be able to detect it, God is faithful and compassionate, and He's at work even in the darkness. I wish I could put that inside each one of your hearts too. Oh, how I want you to know. Oh, how I want you to know that God is at work even in the darkness. He will not leave you or forsake you, believer. He will not abandon you. He is faithful. These light momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. One of the, re one of the ways Christians, church, that God comforts us in our afflictions is through the church, through one another. And so if you need prayer this morning, I'm going to ask the worship team to go ahead and come up. If you need prayer, we're going to have prayer counselors in the back through those double doors. We would love to pray with you. If you need someone to pray with you, if you need somebody to talk to you, if you need someone to encourage you, let us pray with you. We'd be happy to do that. Or maybe this morning you want to follow Jesus. Maybe this morning you would say, I don't know if I've ever truly embraced Jesus as my treasure. I've been hanging on to the riches of Egypt. I haven't ever really let them go. I haven't ever really abandoned them to follow Jesus and to make Him my treasure and to make Him my King. But I want to take the first step in doing that today. If that's you, I invite you to come and pray with one of our prayer counselors in the back. And we can help you get started on that.
Please don't put it off, though. Today is the day of salvation. Let today be the day that God makes, gives you a new heart, forgives your sin, and makes you new. Let me pray, and then we'll stand together, and we'll worship, and you can go out and uh, pray with prayer counselors as you feel led. God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for your promises. You are so faithful and good. You are so faithful, God. You are a compassionate God who sees and hears and knows our groans, our cries, our sufferings. God, I pray that the people here in this room, that all of us, Lord, would, would see and know how good you are. Would see and know and encounter your love. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You give and take away. You give and take away. But our hearts will choose to say, blessed be your name. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.